Good morning. So good to see you all. Welcome. Hey, if you have a Bible, would you open it with me to Mark chapter 10? We're going to be in verse 35 today, picking up where we left off. I do know how to work a ladder, I promise. Here we go. Uh, If you're new here, welcome. So glad that you're with us. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just a real joy to be able to gather every week and as part of our worship time, open up the Bible, read from it, learn from God and see what he has to say to us. So again, Mark 10, 35 is where we'll be starting. Again, glad you're back. Easter was last Sunday, as you know. Easter's come and gone, but Jesus is still alive today and every day. Amen, right? So we still get to celebrate that good news as a church Again, this week and every week. And again, I just want to say thank you to Brian for coming up and sharing about the Venetia Community Action Council. It's really cool to be able to partner with them and give some of our funds to uh, their work. Because as a church, you see in your bulletin, again, the four words when you walk in, worship, connect, grow, and go. That last one, go, is about, one, making disciples, sharing the gospel, helping people come to know Jesus, repenting of their sins and trusting in him through faith. Uh, But that go piece also includes loving our neighbors, caring for those in need. And so through our giving to the Community Action Council, we hope to live that out, to really help those in Benicia that are in need. So it's really cool to see us able to partner with them. You're in Mark chapter 10. I'll join you there and I'm going to read the first couple verses for us as we get started. Verse 35 says this, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this time together. Grateful to be gathered as your church, and to have time now to look to your word. Lord, would you speak to us? Would you open our eyes, open our ears to hear your word? Holy Spirit, would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you encourage us where we need to be encouraged? Would you challenge us where we need to be challenged? Lord, just have your way in our hearts. God, it's it's all about you. Pray that you would be pleased as we come to worship you today. Thank you for welcoming us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, in the year 2000, a book came out. It was a bestseller by Robert Greene, and the title was The 48 Laws of Power. Anyone read it? 48 Laws of Power. What this author tried to do was look back through history at some of the most influential, powerful figures in the history of the world and see what was it about them that allowed them to be so dominant, to exercise their authority over other people. And he compiled all of that wisdom into this book, The 48 Laws of Power. The book description on Amazon.com said, all of the 48 laws, everyone has one thing in common, an interest in total domination, ultimate control. 
See, this was wisdom for anyone who wanted to climb to the top of the ladder, who wanted to pursue greatness, to exercise their authority over other people. I want to share with you some of the findings in that book. Law number six, court attention at all cost. It says this, everything is judged by appearance. What is unseen counts for nothing. So never let yourself get lost in the crowd. Stand out. Make yourself a magnet of attention by appearing larger than the bland, timid masses around you. All right. Law number seven, get others to do the work for you, but always take the credit. Use the legwork of other people to further your own cause. It will give you a godlike aura of efficiency and speed. In the end, your helpers will be forgotten, but you will be remembered. Law number 20, do not commit to anyone. It's the fool, he says, who always rushes to take sides. Don't commit to any side or cause except yourself. By maintaining your independence, you become the master of others playing people against one another, making them pursue you. Or number 34, I think my favorite, be royal. Act like a king to be treated like one. I have a feeling if you applied that in your own home, that would not go over so well. (laughs) You see, this book, it seeks to be both descriptive and prescriptive. It's describing the world as it is, how things work, how power works, how to gain influence over others, how to climb the ladder. It's also prescriptive, saying here's how you can and here's how you should take advantage of others. Pursue greatness and power and influence. Now, as we read through some of those, I hope they sounded a bit off to you. I hope that your internal sensor is saying, wait a minute, There's something not right about these. That's not actually the best way to live. At least I hope that that was your reaction. I hope none of us were just eating it up saying, yeah. No, this is the way of the world, but we as Jesus followers have to ask the question, is this the way of Jesus? Is this the way Christians are to carry themselves in the world? Apparently some of the disciples think it is. You saw that in the verses we started with, verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Which I always think is a pretty curious way to approach the Lord. Jesus, do for me whatever I want you to do. Got off on the wrong foot right from the get-go. But Jesus plays along, verse 36. Okay, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. See, the seats on either side of the king in the kingdom were the next in line, the next most powerful and influential. So they're saying, Jesus, you're talking a lot about this kingdom that you're bringing. You're the king. We know that. But make us the next in command in your administration. Give us the seats of power next to you. This is James and John asking, and maybe you've noticed in the book of Mark so far that Peter, James, and John have kind of this 
inner circle thing going on with Jesus. There's the 12 disciples, but then there are these places along in the gospel where we see it's just Peter, James, and John with Jesus. Earlier when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter to life on the mountaintop, when Jesus is transfigured before them, it's Peter, James, and John. We don't exactly know why, but it seems like Jesus had a certain closeness with those disciples. And so maybe James and John think, okay, we know we're kind of on the inside track with Jesus, but let's just solidify it. Let's just make sure he commits to us in these places of power. But it's so ironic if you think about the context of Mark chapter 10. You remember, if you were with us last week, what just happened? Jesus just told the disciples, we're going to Jerusalem and what's going to happen? I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be beaten and mocked and spit on. I'm going to die. And despite all this talk of suffering and hardship that's ahead for Jesus, the disciples simply have one thing on their minds. Personal gain. Power. Status. Influence. Jesus, give us the seats of power in your kingdom. Enough about this suffering talk. And we see Jesus responds first, verse 38, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. Say that five times fast. A little challenging. So what's he saying? First, you don't understand. You don't understand the nature of my kingdom. You don't understand what you're asking. And he starts talking about a cup and a baptism. In the Old Testament, especially, the cup was a a sign or a a symbol of of suffering, drinking a cup of wrath, drinking a cup of judgment. It was a sign of pain and, and struggle that was coming. And the baptism, he's not referring to his baptism in the Jordan River or to the practice of baptism in the church. It's not what he's talking about. He's pointing forward to a baptism that he is going to face. Essentially, baptism is what? When you're plunged under the water. And so speaking of it in figurative terms, he's going to be plunged into chaos. He's going to be overwhelmed by the waters of death and suffering. He's pointing us to the cross. Saying, do you realize what you're asking? There's a cup I have to drink and a baptism that I have to undergo. And so he's trying to help them see my kingdom is not marked by ease, Comfort by being served by happy times. That's not what's ahead for me. It's the cross. It's suffering. But he says to them, you will face what I face. You'll drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. He's simply saying, as my followers, you're going to face suffering. The cup and the baptism that are mine, you're going to experience them in some sense as well. It's a broad concept of challenges, persecution that's ahead for the disciples. And we see that in the life of the disciples, this proves to be true. James, martyred. John, persecuted, exiled later in life to the island of Patmos. So it comes true. But he says, back to these seats of power you're asking me about, verse 40. To sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. He's saying, what you're asking about, I'm going to leave that decision to God the Father. I'm going to let God the Father sort that out. 
not going to worry about it right now, so you guys don't need to be worrying about it right now, he's telling them. You notice how the other disciples respond? Verse 41, what do they do after this interaction? When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They get angry, angry with James and John. So it seems that James and John are not the only two that are seeking power, that are jockeying for position as a disciple. No, it seems like James and John are just the first ones to ask for the seats. The other disciples aren't mad because the lack of character this shows from James and John, or how dare they ask such a thing. No, they're just mad that they beat them to the punch. But they're asking Jesus for it before they could. So we see this ugly picture of competition and comparison and jockeying for position and power within the disciples, which is something we've seen before, right? Remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Lee was preaching out of chapter 9 after Jesus predicted his death. What conversation are the disciples having? It was about who is the greatest. Again, Jesus talking about death, suffering, and they're stuck focused on which one of them is going to be more powerful, more significant. Who's the greatest? We're back in the same place. Almost an identical concept. But like last time, this isn't just about the disciples back then. This is something for us now because the disciples sort of serve as a mirror that we look into and we see reflection of our own hearts, our own challenges, our own sins. Because we, like the disciples, we're tempted, we're drawn to the latter. We're drawn to pursuing greatness and status and influence and authority. We want to be noticed. We want to be significant and made much of. We want people to talk about us and have a place of status in the community. And this takes different forms for us, depending on who you are, depending on how you're wired. For some of us, this happens with our appearance, our body, our our health, the clothes we wear. There's an image we're trying to put forth. We want to look a little bit better. want to show that we're maybe one rung up the ladder as compared to the rest of the people around us. We take that very seriously. We want to be noticed in a sense, have status in that way. For some of us, it comes in the form of knowledge, wisdom, maybe even biblical knowledge. Some of us get a little puffed up about the amount of the Bible that we know. Maybe the verses we can quote, how maybe we're a bit more knowledgeable Christians than others. Feel a little puffed up. Feel like we're maybe a little more important in the community. We're leaders. People look to us in a certain way. Or maybe some of us, we just really like being in the know. We like knowing things that other people don't. We thrive on that. It makes us feel significant, powerful, one step up the ladder compared to the rest. Maybe for you, it's not any of those things, but it's your work. You're pursuing the corner office. You want the new nameplate on your desk or on your office door, the new title, the promotion. The upgraded salary, again, the corner office, success, status in the workplace, people to address you a certain way, treat you a certain way as 
a boss or a leader. Maybe for you, it's something about parenting. As a parent, you're very proud of the way that you parent, the things that you don't do as a parent, and the things that you do as a parent that other families don't. Take pride in the success of your children, how great of a family you are, how you only serve organic, soy-free, gluten-free food to your kids and not the regular stuff. There's so many different forms this can take where we're trying to climb the ladder. We want status, influence, greatness. We want to be noticed. We want to be seen. Influential, powerful. But it's exhausting to live that way. To constantly be in pursuit of the next rung on the ladder, to constantly be comparing ourselves to others, be jostling for position with other people. That's the way of the world. That's not the way of Christ. It's not the way Jesus taught us to live. See, he shows us another way. Verse 42, Jesus called them together. He said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Brings the disciples close as he normally does. Huddle up. Bring it in. Guys, come. I have something important I want to tell you. What does he say? He says, look to the Gentiles. A word for the non-Jewish world. People that aren't walking with the Lord. Look at them. You know how they function in regards to power. They're climbing the ladder. For them, greatness is about lording authority and power over people. That's the game they play. That's how the world works. Climb the ladder. Be respected. Be noticed. They know all about the 48 laws of power. Push people around. Make others serve you. Compete. This was par for the course for the ancient kings and rulers in their day. They were often brutal, harsh, arrogant, domineering, with a lust for power. And so Jesus says, you know how they operate how the world works, but verse 43, not so with you. Not so with you. You've seen their example. You're not to be like them. The climbing the ladder, that's not for you. That's not for people who follow me. No, instead, he says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. totally flips things upside down for the disciples, doesn't he? He says, if you want to be great, if you want status, don't think about the ladder. Don't think about climbing your way to the top and exerting power over people. Greatness is not defined by people serving you. Greatness is defined by you serving other people. That's what true greatness is about. So if you want to be great in my kingdom, be a servant. Even a slave. Slave of all. So backwards for them. Again, in their mind, greatness, we think of kings or the master of the house. Jesus is saying, don't look to them. Look to the servants. Look to the slaves even. They are your model, your image for greatness. Again, slaves. 
For, for them, this was the lowest possible social status. They're the marker of greatness because they serve. They serve other people. Again, this would make no sense to them. It's hard for us to figure out as well because think about it. Who do we think about when we think about the great ones in our society? Think about people like LeBron James. Or is that just me? All right, Steph Curry. Kevin Durant, we think of sports heroes, athletes, movie stars, people who are influential, who have a big Twitter following, who write books, who are in politics, who are known and influential and have a following. That's where we look for greatness. Saying, no, I don't want you to look at Joe Montana or Derek Carr or Steph Curry or Beyonce or whoever else you may look to. No, he says, instead, look to the water boy on the sideline. Serving in obscurity. That's greatness. It's not what we're used to. Thomas Watson, a Puritan preacher, put it this way. He said, a humble man or woman is willing to have his name and gifts eclipsed so that God's glory may be increased. He's content to be outshined by others, content to be laid aside if God has any other tools to work with, which may bring him, God, more glory. Saying the world says, be noticed. Exert your influence, dominate others. God says, you know what? It's really not about you. It's about him. It's about loving and serving others. So he says, be content to serve in obscurity, to be overlooked, to not be noticed. Go love others freely. Because even if other people don't see, God knows. God sees your work. He sees the way you live. I hope this is especially refreshing for those of us that maybe feel like we're towards the bottom of the ladder. Maybe climbing the ladder is too exhausting or it's just not going very well for us. And so we feel kind of pushed down and kind of towards the bottom. And we think, man, I wish I could be up there. I wish I could be great. It's just not in the cards for me. Don't have the, the money or the education or the, the gifts. But Jesus is redefining greatness. Saying it doesn't matter about your degree, about your income, about your intellect. No, what matters is your heart. Are you willing to serve anyone? can reach that definition of greatness. <laughs> so, we're again left to consider what does this mean for us? If we're to serve the world for Jesus, right? Seek to serve rather than be served. That's kind of uh, the direction Jesus is pointing us. Where should we start? Well, of course, we could talk about serving our community, our neighbors, our friends those that we're in relationship quite often? Are we looking to promote ourselves and to seek comfort for ourselves? Or are we saying, man, how can I pour out my life for the good of my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers? Other than looking about personal advancement, climbing the ladder, how can I serve others? How can I build others up, give away my time, my money, my, my effort, so that others might be blessed? We can do that in a lot of ways. But a humble suggestion is that we maybe start at home. 
It's easy to say, I want to go serve the world for Jesus, but we're never going to be able to serve the world for Jesus if we can't serve those under our own roof. Our family, those we're related to, our spouses, siblings, children. It can be hard at home to make the household run. It's easy to feel like maybe we're not getting the things that we deserve It's easy to feel exhausted and overwhelmed like we give and give. Sometimes it tires us out. And so Jesus is saying, rather than focusing on what maybe you don't get in return or your needs not being met, I want you to focus on serving your family, pouring your life out for them. Even if it's not reciprocated, even if it's not even noticed, will you love them? Even when you're tired, will you do that extra chore you don't want to do? Will you make that extra sacrifice that will bless your family? Again, spouse, child, parent, sibling. If we can't do it at home, we're not going to be able to do it out there. And I say this, and this is a challenging word for me as well. I have a lot to learn in this way around the house and for my family. It's not always easy. But Jesus says, if you want to be great, serve, be a slave. Don't worry about being noticed. Just pour yourself out for others. But you see, he doesn't just leave us with a command. He's going to show us why. Here's why I want you to live this way, he says to his disciples. Verse 45 For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, he uses the phrase Son of Man. It's a title. He's referring to himself, saying, I did not come to be served. I came to serve. And if we think about it, and we think about who Jesus is, surely if anyone had the right to be served, it would be him. God himself, the creator of the universe. What do we remember at Christmas, the incarnation? God came to us. God himself walking among us. The king of kings, the Lord of glory, the creator of everything. If anyone had the right to be served, surely it was Jesus the right to be pampered, to sit back, to have people wait on his every want and need. He could have lived that way. He said, that's not how I came to you, not to be served. I came to serve and to give my life for you. See, he said several times in the book of Mark that he's going to die. Here he explains why. For the first time, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. A ransom. This is the language of the marketplace when someone would purchase the freedom for a slave. Someone would buy their freedom, would pay a debt that they could not pay. Jesus is saying, my death was a ransom for many. He paid the price. He paid our debt of sin. He died for us as our substitute in his atoning work on the cross so that we could be forgiven and freed, and and now live this life with God, filled with his spirit, 
adopted into his family. This is what we remember on Good Friday. The cross of Christ. His death for us, paying a ransom. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm a king, but do you see the kind of king I am? I'm a king that would come and serve rather than seeking to be served. And I served even to the extent of giving my life away for the world. And so if that's true, then we as his people who bear his name are to live likewise, right? He set the model, the example for us to follow. Serve rather than be served. If we bear his name, that's the call on our lives. But I want you to see that we're not just to follow the example of Jesus. Jesus is not just our role model. He certainly is that, but he's much more than that. Because we didn't just need a role model or an example. We needed a savior. And he's going to show us that this much is true. Here's what I mean. There are really two steps to applying this passage to our lives. Two steps. Step number two is go and serve other people, right? Seek to serve rather than be served. Give your life away as a servant, as a slave for the good of other people. That's what Jesus is calling you to. That's how he wants you to live. He was our example. We should do that as well. That's an appropriate and right application of this passage, okay? But that's step number two. Step number one is look at Jesus and remember the gospel. Look at Jesus and remember the gospel. He came to serve you, to give his life for you. So step one, look to him. Realize what he has done for you gave his life for you. And I want us to see that the gospel gives us the power to then live a new life, okay? It's the work of Christ for us that we are are loved and welcomed and forgiven by God when we really understand that truth by the the work of the Holy Spirit. We, We understand that it transforms our hearts, okay? It changes us when we see the way that we have been so loved, We have been loved by God. He died for us. And so in Christ, we have everything we need. We're forgiven, accepted, justified, welcomed into his family, adopted. We have hope of life with him forevermore, forgiven of sin. We have everything that we need. And so from that place of freedom and new life, we then can go and serve other people. Okay? really important that we get this order right because too often in in Christian thought, messages, books, whatever it might be, we we point people to step two and skip step one. And so we say, Jesus wants you to serve people, so go serve people. Jesus wants you to live this way, so go live this way. And it's true, he wants you to live a certain way. But if we skip the gospel, then all we're doing is heaping law on you. Keeping a burden of of do's and don'ts and behavior modification. If we skip the gospel, that's all we have. So don't leave here this morning thinking, God wants me to go serve people. 
I'm going to go serve people. Matt told me to go serve people. I just got to sacrifice and serve people, serve people. That's all. That is step two. That's a part of what we're called to do. And we should go and do that. But please, first, hear the gospel. Make much of Jesus. Remember what he has done for you. He has loved you. He has saved you. He has served you, forgiven you, given his life as a ransom for you. And so when we really get that, you say, oh my goodness, Lord, thank you. It changes our hearts. God, thank you for welcoming me into your home. Thank you for saving me. Then, then we go and serve. Then we say, I have this new life in me. I want to bless other people because we have been so loved. But don't try and do it on your own strength. Don't think that it's just, oh, I'm supposed to serve and God will be happy with me. No, we have to start with the gospel. Jesus gave us a a visual representation of what he was talking about. If you remember John chapter 13, the Last Supper, the night Jesus was betrayed, he's having this last meal with his disciples, and during the meal, he stands up, he removes his outer garment, and he takes a towel in his hand. He takes a towel. This is a sign of service, of humility. He begins to wash the disciples' feet with water and dry them with the towel. The disciples were taken back by this because this was a job that was for the slaves. It was for the servants. I mean, your feet are smelly today, but back then, feet were a little worse because people were walking around on dirt roads in sandals, and so the task of washing people's feet was not a very pleasant one. Again, it was reserved for slaves, for servants. And yet Jesus takes the towel and it begins to wash his disciples' feet. And you remember what he says? He says, you call me your teacher and Lord, and I am. So if I, your teacher and your Lord, do this to you, you then are to go and do likewise. You are then to go and serve one another. So I want to pass out some towels for us today. I want to send you home with a gift. We have plenty for everyone. If everyone would just take a towel, we're going to pass them around. And here's what I want us to do with these towels. Don't worry, you don't have to wash any feet right now. You can... If you're nervous, you can do that at home if you want. Now, I want you to take this towel. I want you to put it somewhere that you're going to see it. Put it in your car. You can put it at your desk, your office. You can put it somewhere in your home. You You can use it. It's actually a pretty nice towel. You can use it. Put it somewhere you're going to see it. Because here's what I want you to remember from today. When you look at this towel, two things. Step one, remember the gospel. Remember the image of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And remember Mark 10, 45. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so when you see this towel, remember the gospel that you have been served 
saved, forgiven, loved by God, and Jesus came to die for you. But also when you see this towel, I want you to remember step two. That you then, because you have been loved and served, you go serve others. Sacrifice for others. Lay your life down for those that you know, for those that you maybe don't know so well. As the people of God, this is our call. Not to climb the ladder. But to take the towel. My friends, if you're here today and you've never put your trust in Christ, you've never put your faith in him and really received the salvation that he's offered you, I would encourage you, let today be that day that you say yes to him. You can pray where you are now, Lord, I need you. Jesus, I've sinned. Jesus, I need your forgiveness. Would you forgive me? Would you wash me? I give my life to you. If you want to know more about that, on the back of your card, there's a box that says that you want to commit your life to the Lord. would love to talk with you more about that. If you're here with someone, I'm sure they would love to talk with you about that. But don't let today pass. If you haven't trusted in Jesus for salvation, let today be that day. So my friends, Jesus had his own laws of power. They weren't like Robert Greene's 48 that we started the morning with. They read a little different. Law number one, greatness is measured not by who serves you, but by who you serve. Law number two, give your life away for the sake of others. Law number three, if you want to be great, ditch the ladder, grab the towel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for saving us, Jesus, who again, first look to you and remember the gospel, the good news that you have come and died for us. You've forgiven us of our sin and you rose from the grave. You've given us new life in you and joy forevermore with you. Thank you, Lord, for that hope. And God, we pray you'd strengthen us. Fill us with your spirit to go out into the world with the desire to serve rather than be served. Lord, help us to take the towel rather than seeking to climb the ladder. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.